Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Aaron Jackson had quite the 2020, starting it by performing on Late Night with Seth Meyers and ending it by filming a set for Netflix as part of the second season of Tiffany Haddish Presents They Ready, alongside the likes of Tony Woods, Dean Edwards, and Godfrey. Jackson came out of the DC comedy scene in the early 2000s, had Ellen DeGeneres encourage her to quit her day job, and previously appeared on two different seasons of Last Comic Standing, as well as Live at Gotham and Conan. Jackson released her first comedy album, Grudgery, in 2018, and joined me over Zoom to talk about her life and career, as well as developing a Netflix-ready set during the pandemic. So let's get to it! So, Aaron Jackson. <laughs> Sorry. <I'm> tired. <laughs> so, Aaron Jackson, thank you for, I guess that's your pre-show. What is your pre-show routine? Is it stare at the sky and open your mouth? Oh, my God. It's chalk like LeBron. You haven't seen me? Have you not seen me? <laughs> Actually, I have seen you. And let's get to that. Okay. Uh, uh, well, first off, congratulations on the, on the Netflix gig. Thank um, you. And the last time I saw you in person was in my neighborhood back last May. It was one of the first uh, outdoor shows. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's right. And you were, I, I don't know. I think it might've been your first show. It was my first that. one. Yeah. yeah. So, and then I, then I, yeah. So yeah. let me just set the scene for people who weren't there. So this was outside uh, the Bel Air Diner in Astoria, Queens, they had a comedy show set up in the parking lot and they had the comedian speak from the back of a pickup truck while the audience was all sitting in their cars. And that was the first time you did stand up during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was wild. I, it, the weirdest thing is it's, I, it's, I was saying this to somebody the other day for the first 16 years of my career, is it outside was, and the answer was yes. Was it, Oh, I'm never, I'm not doing that show. <laughs> Right now, it's like, is it outside? Because if not, I'm not doing that show. Like, it's crazy. But that, yeah, that was my first time back since it had been March. So it had only been about two months then, and it felt like three years. Yes. Um, and then I sat still for like the rest of the summer until Tiffany called. Like, I hadn't been out. I hadn't been doing shows. I just was like, this is this is not worth it. To what end am I doing this? Let me just sit home and be safe. And I was doing that. And then Tiffany Haddish was like, hey, want to do a special? I was like, on Zoom? <laughs> do I have to? Do I, what are we talking about? Um, and so, yeah, that's when I started going out and doing some of the rooftop shows and stuff. That makes your, your performance on They Ready that much more remarkable because you had so much material that you managed to tie to the pandemic. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I would say... A nice chunk of it was brand new, but a lot of it was repurposed stuff that I had already been doing that mm -hmm. I could like, oh, if I tweak this, you know, I mean, that's that's probably, you know, I, I mean, it was all brand new and real people listening. <laughs> no, but well, walk, I think walk, you know, walk, that, that, those little tweaks. Yeah. Walk me through how you went about building a, a, a killer set for Netflix 
without the benefit of performing it and practicing it like a stand-up comedian normally would. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. It was one of those things where you just go, I have to do this, right? Like, I have to say yes. But it was like, you get the biggest opportunity of your career at a time when you are not prepared. And it was just, it was, it was like, oh my God, am I going to waste this? And so, you know, in the beginning, it was a lot of, you know, I had just done some of my favorite newer bits um, on Seth Meyers, right when I got the call. It was, it was really interesting when I, um, I didn't know what the call was about, but the producer of the show, um, we've worked together a ton in my career. And she just was like, hey, you have a current tape of just some stuff you're working on. And I was like, well, I have a tape because I was working on a late night set. Not working on it, but just planning to start working on one. Right. And so I just had like, a, I was like, well, here's, a, here's some stuff I've been doing. I just sent them a, a set in the club. And then basically I did 90% of that set on Seth Meyers. So then when I got the call and they were like, oh my God, they love what you sent us. I was like, oh, I burned it. <laughs> you know? Right? I did like, that on I was, television. I'm, right. I'm just- I just did it. If you had told me what it was for, you know? Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so that happened. So then I was like kind of bummed. I'm going, okay not scraps, but like, I felt like I had jokes that were, that didn't fit a set. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm like, well, I have some good jokes, but how do they go together to tell a story? Right. Cause you know, it's not, it's not just me telling jokes for 20 minutes. So I thought, okay, these are the jokes that I have left right now that I really, really like that. I feel like are polished enough. Now I've got to fill in the holes, right? Like now I've got to figure out how do I get from here to here? What can I write about? You know what I mean? I went back and listened to my album and I was like, is there some stuff here I can pull or some ideas I can, you know, redevelop or repurpose. So I did a little bit of that and just kind of put it together. And it, it literally didn't come together until a couple of days before. Like I just was still reordering stuff like, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Um, there, move it here, change it. It, it. it was a lot of, I felt like surgery. Um, and I'm really happy with how it came out. It didn't feel that good. It didn't feel like it looked. And so I'm very happy that it looked better than it felt. <laughs> is, is that just because of the the weirdness of trying to do a set for tape in COVID? Probably that it didn't feel- part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the other part is that I'm just used to over-preparing, right? Like, you know- I had a week to do the Seth Meyers gig before I found out that I, you know, between when I was offered and when I had, when I got it, I had no set prepared, even though I had, you know, started thinking about it. I got up six times a night, every night that week. Right. I probably got up 10 times total to prep for this set after sitting at home for seven months. You know what I mean? So it was like, that was like a night and a half of work. So how, you know, so I just didn't feel as prepared as I'd like to feel. Right. Um, but thank goodness, you know, I think that's the, the thing about they ready, right? Like these are people who are, you know, um, who have been around doing it long enough that the muscle memory kicks in. I just have to get up a couple of times and just get, get it back and try, you know what I mean? And then it was a lot of, you know, the thing that people think comedians do, which is not what we really do, but a lot of saying it to myself in the whole t- hotel room. <laughs> because <laughs> we had to quarantine to go to LA. We had to sit in the room for about, you know, almost a week mm-hmm. before we could get to set and do everything, you know? So it was one of those things where everything was condensed, you know, we didn't have wardrobe till the day of, we didn't have, so we didn't do any of the stuff that would have, so it all felt like it happened in one day and it was just a lot. So 
looking back on it, I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, we all did really well for what <laughs> the circumstances were. I was so impressed. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of part of this season of They Ready was, you know, Tiffany, along with Wanda and Paige, like picking comedians who know what they're doing and have been around. It's not like this is your first shot. This is it's more like this is your proper shot. Right. In fact, when I was going, I, I was, you know, trying to remember like the first time we met. Like, I know I've written about you over the years, but I'm like, when, when did I first meet Aaron? And I think it might have been the same at the same place that I talked to Godfrey, which was a TV taping in Chicago that you that you both got cut from for Just for Last Chicago with TBS. <laughs> and that was 12 years ago. And I was a like, got cut. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people got cut. But but it's just like the 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 ironic coincidence that like both you and Godfrey thought you were going to have this TV credit and then boom, it's yanked from you. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then it's a long slog to get another like really choice yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just did my first late, late night spots in 2018 and 2020 after however long I've been doing this, you know? So it's, yeah, this is, this was great, but I, you know, I feel like I'm in a much better position to take, Take it and well, I can't take advantage. That's the word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> take advantage of it whenever the world opens. Um, than I would have been before to get a really big shot. You know, um, a better stage in my career, um, with representation and all those. You know, all the things that can really help you take it to the next level. So I'm excited. Is is that is that part of like the lesson you learned from your appearance on Ellen, which was way back, two thousand eight. Like the what do idea you mean in terms in terms of like you get this you get this spot on a on a on a big t v show with a big comedy name, like going, oh, I like this, I like this young lady, she's really funny, right, and then you're like, you know, even a few years later, you were writing about it for the Washington Post, going, I'm still like waiting kind of for that big break, yeah, I mean at at that point, I definitely wasn't in a position to take advantage of it. But I was still a very new comic, you know, then I probably was three or four years into comedy at that point. I still had a job. Ellen liked me, but that didn't translate to me having any work to be able to quit my job and become a comedian. (laughs) You know, she liked me. I didn't have any gigs. So I, um, but it did, you know, that was, that was probably actually, even though it's been a really slow burn, there's been a lot that's happened in the last decade, you know, that opportunity helped me get, um, booked at the national college conference and I quit my job, maybe the beginning of the next year, you know, like that, mm-hmm. you know, having that tape help, allowed me to go to NACA national book, a bunch of schools. And then I was like, all right, I'll try it, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, this is, this is the best I've ever been positioned. So yeah. And I have a really great team. Why did you, why did you decide to stay in DC for as long as you did before? making the jump to New York or LA? Well, I, I don't, so I, (laughs) I wasn't in DC as long as people think I was. I, uh, (laughs) so I started off in DC, obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I started in 2004, so I'm coming up on 17 years next month. Um, started in 2004, 
went full time at the like February of 2009. So not even five years. And then I was a full time comedian. So I think that's relatively, you know, um, you know, not so long to become a professional comedian. I wanted to move to New York then. Um, and I had a couple roadblocks. I had bought a house because my parents told me that that was a thing that adults do. And when I still had a job and they were like, if you're ever going to buy a house, you have to buy it while you still have a job because you're not going to get a house when you're right. a comedian because you're not going to have any money. And I didn't even want a house, <laughs> but <laughs> they said to buy a house. So I was like, all right, I guess I should buy a house. It's a great investment. Okay. I bought a house in 2006, the end of 2006. And then of course um, the in bottom DC, fell out sure. of the market in okay. DC. Mm-hmm. Bottom fell out of the market. Um, I couldn't sell it. I couldn't take money out of it. All this stuff. I had lost a huge down payment, a huge down payment. So then I was like, oh, I'll rent it out. And then I'll move to New York. These are all my plans. I'll just rent it out. I'll become a landlord. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't realize what that took, you know, that you had to have extra money to kind of be a landlord. Um, (laughs) Just in case you had a shitty tenant. Didn't Hannibal Um, Buress tell you that? Famous comedian landlord Hannibal (laughs) Buress. I didn't. I just. I guess I was not listening. So, I uh, yeah. I round up with a squatter. Um, oh no! I couldn't get her out of my house for a year. I had to go live with my parents in that time because I couldn't pay my mortgage and rent in New York. So I ended up. I moved down to the Hampton Roads area of Virginia, where there's so much comedy, right? <laughs> right. And uh, I lived down there while I got my squatter out, I got my squatter out and then I got sick and I was sick um, for about a year before I figured out why I was sick. And then I was sick for another year. Oh no. Um, and did so I health? felt like, did you have health I'm insurance? Sorry? Did you have health insurance when you were sick? I, at, at one point, you know what I mean? Not, not at the beginning, mm-hmm. but then Obamacare kicked in, you know, so it was, you okay. know, um, uh, I was able to get health insurance, but Meanwhile, I had outrageous hospital bills when I didn't have from when I didn't have health insurance. And um, and I literally was immobile. I couldn't move. I was on a cane. I was, you know, um, trying to pretend like I was still doing comedy the way that I you know what I mean? Like it's it's all a facade, you know, like I would I'd be going to do college shows. I'd be in a wheelchair in the airport, a cane to get to the stage. Um, And so I felt like my career was really on hold, you know, for about three years um, being down there. Uh, There were some local clubs, but, you know, you know, I needed to have been moving to New York. I didn't need to be moving further away from comedy, which is which is what I did. So um, when I got well enough to, like, walk up subway stairs, (laughs) I came to New York Um, and that was 2014. Okay. Um, in those, in those few years then when you were were dealing with your health and then also like psychologically just feeling more and more removed from the comedy business, how did you emotionally, mentally keep, keep going? Like, what did you tell yourself? What did you, what did you do? Like who helped you? Well, I quit every day. I was mm-hmm. like, I, I'm not doing this anymore. I quit. I've got to find a real job. Like in my brain, I was like, this is not, this, this is not going to work. Um, during the time when I was living with my parents and I was sick, I had gotten last comic for the second time. Cause I did it in 08. Um, and then I did it in 2014. And, uh, 
I remember they were like really trying to help. They were like, we want to do one of those packages on you to get people to know you. And they were like, what's your life like? Who do you hang out with? I'm like, my parents. I live in Hampton, Virginia. Like, there's no package here. <laughs> I don't have any friends here. I haven't had friends. And you know what I mean? Like, I just, it was, it was a really rough time. Um, I don't know what kept me going. I guess I just was like, well, I really don't, you know, I mean, it was nice to be able to save whatever money I was making. Like, I was still on the road, but by the last year I was with my parents, I did have a good tenant. So I wasn't paying my mortgage. So I was able to save. Okay. Um, and so that helped me feel like I wasn't like destitute. <laughs> and, uh, and just, it gave, it gave me hope once I figured out what was wrong and that I could get better. I was like, okay, when I get better, I can, I can do this again. I can start again. But you know, there are people like, I'm, oh gosh, I never really talked about this. Um, there are people I'm sure who were like, what happened to Aaron Jackson? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I just kind of just was, yeah, I don't know what happened. It was a really, it was kind of like a blur, but also a really long time. Um, but I got here and I, as soon as I got here, I hit the ground running, you know, um, grew up in Jersey, decided to live in Jersey, not the city, but and drive in, but you know, I had been working at Gotham for nearly a decade just because I would just come up and, you know, do shows. And I had been past there a long time. So I jumped right into getting spots there. And within the first month I was here, I got past the cellar. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's been a slow burn in the city, but I had been on the road so long. I felt like I knew a lot of people. I knew I knew everybody, you know. So right. once I once people knew I was here, um you know, people would look out and, and it, and I just started to feel like, because I was not feeling very creative either when I was in Virginia, like I was not motivated. There was nothing I wanted to write about. I wasn't just in the, and then I got here and I was like, Oh, it's flowing again. I have jokes in my brain again. I see things again. Um, and, uh, and I just got better. I got up so much and I just started becoming a better comic, which is what you've come to New York to do. And, uh, and now look, I'm on Netflix. I'm in Times Square on a billboard. Damn it! It's amazing. Amazing. See what happens when you when you put yourself back into the mix. Yeah. You know. Um, you know. I was thinking too. Like it. It must have meant a lot too that that you know Wanda and Paige, Wanda Sykes and Paige Hurwitz with their Push It Productions. We're kind of like pushing for you. Yeah, they gave you not you know, like not just with last comic, but then weren't there a couple of other projects that that they did that you were involved in? Well, yeah, they were involved in a lot. Like the first time I did last comic, obviously Paige was the producer. Paige got me on Ellen. I did last comic again. I did Wanda's series that she had on own. Um, there's tons of stuff they tried to pitch me for that either didn't go. I mean, you know I mean? Even if the show didn't happen, they thought of me for it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and so to have them still believe in me and, and, and I've known Paige since the first year of my comedy career, I opened for her and, and that's how we met. And I just stayed in touch. I was annoying on MySpace and all that shit. And, <laughs> and, but we developed a relationship and, and uh, yeah, it feels good to have, especially Wanda. I mean, like your hero, kind of believe in you and go, no, you've got something. You're a good comic and I'm going to keep coming back, you know, and trying to help. And, and so 
to do something I'm, that I hope that they're very proud of too. Like this special, like things because Tiffany and I didn't know each other in the real world, in the real world. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think most of the, the, the ladies on the first season were her good friends or people that right. she knew. And, um, Tiffany definitely knows Dean and Tony and, you know, Barbara, um, she knows Kim. I, I, and Godfrey, I think I might've been the only person on the season that Tiffany never actually met, <laughs> which means a lot. Like how, you know, you know what I mean? You could, to help your friends is one thing, but to help a comic that you just think is talented and right. have no connection to, and like, it's beyond, beyond. So. And then, you know, one of the other things I liked about, um, watching like the, there was that after show special mm. uh, episode that, that follows the six pack of standups. And I really liked, like her last question, which was asking each of you to mention a comedian that you would bring up too, because I feel like that's kind of the, the secret to a lot of the success in comedies, like comedians looking out for each other, even though it's such an individual kind of isolating experience being a standup, like the idea of like, Oh, well, we all went through this, through the trenches together and you're really funny. And if I get it, you're going to get it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was great. And it's so funny. We, there were, there were a lot more people that were brought up than, you know, showed up <laughs> in the thing. Cause it was like one person, like one person, one person, but, and then somebody would go like, Oh, I was going to say that person. I was going to say that person. You know what I mean? And I was like the person, the, the young lady that I, that I said was um, she's a younger comic um, she's, so she's not someone who's been doing it as long as, you know, the people on that stage just then, but she is, she has a thing and she's interesting. And I just think that she's so great. And, um, her name is Paris Sachet and, and it's, it's, but, it, but I would love to, you know, I see somebody that I would love to work with and I go, oh, I just, how can I work with her? How can I get her to write on something? How can I, you know, um, utilize her? But I, I would love to be in a position to do something like this for other comics like it's just amazing and so i hope i get the opportunity i definitely will um you know one of the one of the, the the things about the pandemic other than like shutting down a lot of live comedy but it's also you know given us a chance to like reflect on how things have been going and yeah you know the business of comedy and the things that are good and the things that are very bad um you know there's been a lot of talk about you know social justice uh for for black performers for female performers you know obviously you, you know you kind of intersectionally you know hit, hit a number of those boxes what do you kind of hope to see happen with the comedy industry when we do finally open things back up well i mean i i would definitely like <clears throat> as much as it's great what Tiffany's done. I, I would love to see um, the industry embrace diverse comedians and not, it just have to be us pulling each other up. Um, like, you know, I, I, I would, I would love to see that more. I, um, you know, I've kind of pivoted, which is, which has been, um, it's been, it's been good. A good part of the pandemic for me is that like before um, this all happened last not last year, I guess at the end of 2019, I sold the TV right. show um, and uh, and was already moving towards pivoting towards the writing side. Um, not permanently, but just, you know, really trying to dip my toe in. And I just always thought that like, man, I don't want comedy. Is, I don't want my stand up to suffer. Um, but I've been, had an opportunity to write, write undisturbed and not have to worry about my stand up suffering during the pandemic. Um, 
so that's been something I noticed, but in, in a lot of the, you know, positions in terms of staffing, it's, it's still like, we need a diversity hire. You just need one. Why don't you just, <laughs> I mean, it's cool if I was the one, but you know what I mean? Just why is, why are, why are we still there? Why are we still, you know, um, at that, I just like to see that change. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah. yeah, I have seen I have seen some writers on social media, I think through Twitter, try to prop up and like expand like databases of, of available writers so that mm-hmm. so you can't use that excuse anymore. Of mm-hmm. Well, we don't know anybody. We only know this one person and that person gets to fill the slot every time. And that's the thing, though, once people get opportunities, because honestly, the game is still you bring up who, you know, in a lot of these circles. Right. But you have to have people in positions to be on these shows and get the experience to be able to hide, you know, to be able to say, oh, these are my friends that are talented writers or I, I sold the show that, so I can now bring on these people and give them an opportunity. You know what I mean? But it, we're still at the point where those numbers are so low that we don't have the opportunity to do that in a lot of um, in a lot of spaces. So I'm hoping that all changes um, gets better. I know it's not going to just change. Um <laughs> But, uh, but yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, you have to get people in through the door at the, at the bottom so then they can rise up just like everybody else does. Right. Um, one of the other things I remember, I think I wrote about this on my site, was even I was tracking this toward the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020, uh, the, the booking of headliners across comedy clubs nationwide. And it was so mm-hmm. staggering how even, even now most comedy clubs would only – you know, give like one weekend to a woman headliner. Yeah. And then like, if you looked like, like a whole month of, of bookings, like if there were women dotted in there for like one nighters, they were usually like uh, a podcaster or like a YouTuber. Like the, the, the number of opportunities for, for women in the, in just the mainstream clubs was still woefully deficient. And then, you know, I'm always reminded by, by road comics that the, the pay for features exactly. hasn't changed in 30 years. It's ridiculous. That's why I had to, I mean, I had to get off the road. I had to either, either I had to quit or I had to come to New York. Like it was, that was, that was just it. I couldn't live by being a, a, a road feature. Obviously, like you said, I'm not going to be a road headliner, even though I can do the job. Oh yeah, you can headline a split weekend when somebody doesn't want to do the Thursday and the Sunday. We know you can do it, but you know, Fair enough that I'm not a draw. I get that, you know, but I definitely couldn't live as a feature. And I got to New York and I was like, I can make so much more money 20 minutes from my house, (laughs) you know what I mean? In a weekend that I could ever have made. And then, you know what I mean? And then you just meet these shitty headliners who are like, no, you can't sell your merch. You can't make any money. I'm like, I bought a plane ticket to come here and I made $400. Can I please sell a t-shirt so I can play? You know, it was just. You, you can't live like that. Nobody can live like that. Yeah. Why do that when you can do spot pay in, in Manhattan and yeah. make more money without any travel expenses? Exactly. Thank so, you. so uh, I asked this of another podcast guest that I talked to this week um, and I liked it so much. I'm going to ask you as well. Okay. Uh, you know, we have a new, we have a new president in the white house. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> it happened. It's official. Okay. And, um, you know, a lot has been made about the the new president uh, so far enacting a lot of things through executive orders, which makes me want to note, 
Aaron Jackson, if you were the president of comedy, what would you change via executive order to immediately enact change in the comedy business? Oh, man. Sean. (laughs) (laughs) What was the other person's answer? Oh, my goodness. What (laughs) thing would I want to change in comedy? Like, that's a whole other interview. Actually, actually, the uh, the other the other answer I got was um, so it was it caught me off guard because it wasn't about like comedy clubs or or agents or bookers. It was uh, his his plan was to uh, not allow new comedians. It was twofold: not to allow new comedians to share videos of themselves performing for five years <laughs> until they've been doing comedy for five years. They couldn't put their videos out on the internet. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. on the other hand, like uh, clubs would make it impossible for people to film comedians. That should definitely be a thing. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I don't know. I feel like. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No. I, yeah, you did. I... <laughs> no, I thought I would warm you up by talking about the business. So you were already no, kind I of thinking like, what you might have gripes about might be like rising. I mean, I have a lot of gripes. Um, one of my biggest... I don't know what the executive order would be to fix it. But like, I'm the comedian who, um, who for most of her career didn't really have anybody negotiating on my behalf or, mm-hmm. you know, have any representation. And I, was al- I always asked everybody what they made. Like, I was like, why are you, just tell me the truth. Like, I'm not asking like, you know, Chris Rock what he's making, but I mean, people that are, you know, in my, I'm right. like, would you make it that gig before I, you know, agree to do just, just to yeah. see how people were shitting on us, you know, right. as women, as, you know what I mean? As, as people without management, whatever, whatever. So I would go in there with like an educated number um, and, uh, and appalled by the things that I was offered based on what I know somebody else I mean, I asked the guys mostly I asked like what they made. Um, so so would you make an order for at least, if not equal pay, then standardized pay? For I mean, that would be great. Or just, you know, be bold enough to tell me what you paid everybody and why you're paying me less. Like if you want to pay it, pub, put it out there. Tell me who you what you paid everybody. Um, and everybody doesn't want their shit out there, I'm sure. But I just that is the biggest thing to me, like the the that people who have the ability and the talent to do the job are getting screwed by people of equal level of talent, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And, and it's not just male, female, it's across the board. And I'm like, you know, people are like, don't discuss money. I'm like, no, absolutely discuss money. If you have friends in this business, ask them what they made. It's not a, you know, it's not going to get you in trouble. Right. I'm not going to say, you know, Sean made this much money. I'm just going to say, no, that's not, you know. No, I remember this, this was, whoa, 20 years ago when I was living and working in Arizona, I was good friends with the, the guy who ran the Tempe Improv. And that was the first time that I actually knew what kind of numbers were out there. Mm-hmm. And the idea that like one headliner could make for six shows in a weekend, one headliner could make $25,000. And then another headliner could make $2,000. Mm-hmm. And it was like- That's the headliner that I am. <laughs> it was like, Wow. And then, but then, but then that's also when I learned, like, there were all these other nuances to, to deals, like door deals and, yeah, you know, quick how many tickets and drinks, how many drinks can you sell? Like how yeah, many, how many, you know, like 
a bonus for a sold out show and mm -hmm. watching comedians on a Sunday night go into the office and like yell and scream about whether it was sold out or not to make the bonus. Yep. So yeah, there definitely should be some uh, financial. Something about in that, in that realm. I don't, yeah. definitely, I mean, that's kind of, and that's also the thing that kind of like tears comedians apart. You know, we've, people have grumbled from time to time over the last 40 years about whether there should be a union or not. And I don't know if that's feasible for stand-up comedy, but at the same time, like you said, there should be more cooperation. People and don't understand that undercutting each other. I mean, it's every industry. Like, it's just, you're hurting everybody. Like, don't do it for that amount. <laughs> if everybody says no to that person, they are going to have to start paying more, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, we have not been able to get a union together, but. Hmm. Um, well, we've, we've had to do one thing, Aaron, and that's uh, we've done this Zoom call without any squatters in your screen. Oh my goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> I have, I want to, I'm, I'm thinking that that's going to be the majority. Cause now I'm thinking about what am I going to write about next? That experience of this guy, I mean, camping outside my house waiting for her. I mean, she, <laughs> I'm going to write a show or a, a stage play or something about that experience. It was horrid. I talked about it a little on my record, but uh, she's going to have to get spotlighted now. Well, if you want to hear the short version, uh, check out Aaron Jackson's uh, stand-up comedy <laughs> album, Grudgery. And uh, if you want to hear even more, uh, look forward to Aaron Jackson's upcoming show. Yes, yes. And in the meantime, Aaron Jackson is on Netflix with Tiffany Haddish Presents They Ready. So thank you so much, Aaron. It was a, it's a pleasure to talk to you, as always. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.